Open up your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. <laughs> you guys thought I was going to say Romans chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 2. No, you got a study sheet? Yeah, I do. All right, read for me what the title is. Make me a case as to why defense wins games, not offense. Because you have to stop them from scoring. Very true. Anything else you want to add to that? Nope. Uh, I like it. I like it. What was that? Depends if you have Patrick Mahomes or not. <laughs> if you got him, you just win. Just or Aaron Jones. The other thing I like about that, though, do you guys, anybody here know who Vince Lombardi is? No. Yeah. He's bald. No, he's not. He's dead. He's dead. <laughs> well, so I guess technically he is because he's dead. All right. So Vince Lombardi is the guy who the Super Bowl trophy is named after. And the reason they named the Super Bowl trophy after Vince Lombardi is because of the fact he is one of the greatest coaches of all time. He coached the Green Bay Packers. Vince Lombardi, Andy. Then why would you even ask? Vince Lombardi said this. He said, football is two things. Football is two things. Blocking and tackling. He goes, it doesn't matter what new tricks you do on offense. It doesn't matter how great your defense is. If you can block and you can tackle, you will win games. And the thing I love about that is obviously tackling is done on what? Defense. But you know what you don't often think about is that even blocking, though you're on offense, you're still being defensive. What? He was just saying something like my Oh, okay. Good job. Blocking is still kind of defense in a sense. Wow, defense in a sense. Even though you're on offense, what is a blocker doing? Defending the ball carrier. He's defending the ball carrier, whether it be the quarterback, the wide receiver, the running back. He's defending him. So when it comes to offense is great, defense is much more, that's really going to be the emphasis of what we're going to be looking at tonight. And you'll see that here in our introduction. But Noah, one thing though, you pronounced offense wrong. Oh, I think we're getting somewhere with that. More on that in a little bit. Look at your introduction. We begin the second quarter of our study by looking at offense and defense. Our opponent is strong and fierce. That was the first three chapters. Sin, death, against us. But as we saw last week, our defensive coordinator has our victory secured. Last week in chapter 4, we saw that justification, being made right with God, being declared not guilty of sin, came only by faith in the blood of Jesus Christ. And when you put your faith and trust in Him and Him alone, not in the works of the law, not in your own good deeds, when you do that by faith alone, you have been declared just. And the Bible says that His righteousness is actually imputed or put onto your account. That was last week. Now, God, foreseeing that we could never earn our way to heaven by our own righteousness, chose rather to impute His righteousness in our account the moment we trusted in the shed blood of Christ by faith. Faith is your blank. If last week was looking at how we're justified by faith, tonight will be the why. Why we're justified by faith. And no matter what the enemy has thrown at us, when sin runs deep, His grace is much more. There's a reason why I have that in the intro as your blank. There's a reason why I have that in your title because that phrase comes up again and again and again in Romans chapter 5. And you want to pay close attention to every single time it shows up. That is the key to unlocking this entire book. I guess if you guys are in Ephesians 2, I should probably get there as well. But before we go further... Somebody want to go ahead and open us up? Uh, actually, no. I'm going to wait on that. Ephesians chapter 2. Look at the top of your outline. Point number one, saved by His life. In Romans chapter 5, verse 1, I went ahead and put it up here on the screen. Therefore, being justified by faith, again, see last week's notes, that's why he said therefore, 
direct connection to chapter 4. Being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. I love that. See, in letter A, we come to realize that we are criminals who are now standing in hope and peace. Point one, we have peace with God. Do not miss that. Do not miss the scope and the magnitude of what it is that you have been saved from. Do you realize it does not say that God gave you His peace? That's true. That did happen at the moment you decided to trust Him by faith. But that's not what He's saying here. He didn't say that, hey, I'm going to give you peace so that everything is better. No. Being justified by faith, we have peace with God, meaning we are at peace with Him. Because prior to being justified by faith, when you were still in your sins, you were not at peace with a holy and righteous God. You know what you were? The opposite of peace, which is what? Does anybody read Tolstoy? War. Peace and war? War and peace, sorry. Yes, you were at war with him. You guys need to read. Get cultured. We're at peace with God when there was no peace. Psalm 711 says, God judgeth the righteous and God is angry with the wicked. How often? And who? The wicked. And define for me what the wicked is. Simply put, not a trick question. Sinners. Yeah. People who have not been justified by faith in the shed blood of Christ. Do you know people who are wicked? Are you not surrounded by them every single day of your life? Those people are not at peace with God. Instead, God is angry with them every single day because they willfully choose to live in violation and in opposition to His Word. That was you before you came to know Christ. That is everyone you know who does not know Christ. And furthermore, Isaiah 48.22 says, There is no peace, saith the Lord, unto the who? The wicked. Are you glad and thankful that you have peace? And that brings up something too, and I'm going to talk about this more next week with the word joy. But you know what peace is? Peace does not mean happiness. Peace is different from happiness. Happiness is temporal. You can have a really crappy day, and a lot of times we do. Whether it be what's going on at school, what someone said about us, our home life, we can have a lot of crappy stuff happen to us. Peace is not happiness. Happiness is temporal. Happiness changes on a day-by-day basis, on an hour-by-hour basis in some cases. Peace transcends that. Peace is what happens internally, no matter how crappy things are externally. Do you realize that that is something that you have the privilege of occupying? You have the privilege of ascertaining, of holding on to, now that you have been justified by faith? And that is something that sets you apart and makes you completely different from all of the lost world? Your friends and family members who are not justified by the blood, who have not crossed over by faith and received Jesus Christ as Savior, they have no peace which means all of the junk that you go through, that they also go through, the only difference is they have no hope. They have no peace. You have an opportunity every second that you see them to offer them that peace. Are you thankful for the blood? Are you thankful that you've been justified? Do you forget these things throughout the day? Because I'll be honest, sometimes I do. We have peace with God. Ephesians chapter 2, look with me in verse 14. A great chapter that also describes what happened to us at the moment of salvation, though we don't probably realize it. He's talking here about Jews and Gentiles and how because of the cross, He's made Jews and Gentiles, all who believe, He's made them one in Christ. Look at verse 14. For He is our peace. Jesus Christ doesn't just bring peace. He is our peace. He is the embodiment of peace. He is peace encapsulated. Who hath made both one, Jew and Gentile, and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us, having abolished in his flesh. 
by what he went through on the cross, the enmity or the division, in other words, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances for to make in himself of twain to one new man. So making what? Peace. Peace. And furthermore, in other words, that he might reconcile or bring back together both unto God, the Father, in other words, in one body by the what? Cross. Having slain the enmity thereby, the flesh, the devil, our sin, death, and came and preached peace to you that were far off, to them and to them that were nigh. You realize that you and I, as predominantly Gentiles in this room, I don't think there's any... Jewish people in here other than Andy. Praise the Lord he converted, though, into Christianity. That was a joke. (laughs) Do you realize that for us Gentiles, we were afar off from the promises of God? That's what last week was all about with Abraham and David. But because he had made it to whereas it was by faith that we are justified, man, we are now close to him, nearer than you might even realize, and more on that in a second. But not only do we have peace with God, check out Romans chapter 5, verse 2, also on the screen. By whom also we have access, by what? Into this grace wherein we stand. We can stand firm. We're not shackled in chains anymore. No, we can stand free and justified because we have been declared not guilty. What is it called whenever a witness goes to court and they have to stand before the judge and give a testimony? They go to the, what's it called? They go, no, not that. They go to the stand. They take the stand. Meaning that they are testifying and giving a testimony of a witness of something. You realize that because of what Christ did on the cross and us being justified by faith, not only do we have peace with God. He's no longer at war with us. But we can stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God because we have access to Him. This is going to make more sense here in a little bit because I have somewhere I want to go. And honestly, where we go, it might be all we spend our time on the rest of the night and we might have to come back to chapter 5 next week. But, man, this whole idea of hope, though, Dang it, I keep forgetting that I have to do that. Colossians 1.27 says, To whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you. More on that next week. The hope of glory. You see, just like we saw with Romans 5.1, that peace is a person. Christ is our peace. Colossians 1 tells us that just like Romans 5.2, we have the hope of glory. Jesus Christ is also the living embodiment of hope. He is the hope of glory. 1 Timothy 1.1, Paul himself even says, The Lord Jesus Christ, which is our hope. Do you have peace with God? Are you thankful that God is no longer angry with you every single day? Do you have hope? Do you have hope that gets you through even the darkest of times? Do you trust that Jesus Christ is not only your friend, your advocate, your father, but that he is also the living embodiment of hope? What do you do when you have rough times? What do you do when it seems like all of the world and your flesh and all of your friends are just against you? Who do you go to? Don't get me wrong. I would love it if each and every single one of you reached out to somebody else in this room, a leader, a friend, a brother or a sister, and asked for them to pray for you whenever you're going through the thick of it. Nothing would make me happier than that. In fact, put it out in the group me so that we all know and we can all be praying together because there's strength in numbers. But man, I'll tell you what. You know what none of us can give you the living embodiment of? that only Jesus Christ can give you? Hope. Because He is our hope. He is the living embodiment thereof. And this is where, before we go further, I want to go ahead and I want to stop here and I want us to pray. A little different tonight. But for me, I know I definitely need it with where we're going next in the study tonight. 
because it's very, very heavy, it's very deep, and I want to make sure that I get out of the way and that God just completely takes over and shares this because this is one of those things that for a while my entire focus of wanting to do the book of Romans again was to reveal to you guys, number one, have a Wednesday night study where you can bring out friends where they'll hear the gospel literally every single chapter every single week. Well, we're through the first quarter already. Still got three more quarters left before game's over. So who God's laying on your heart right now? Plenty of time to invite Him. That was the first predominant reason. But the second one, as I've mentioned before, there are things that this book talks about of what happened to us at the moment of salvation that most adults don't even get. What happened from God's perspective looking down at us that is so incredible. And we often miss it and we take it for granted. And tonight is going to be one of those things that I, I really want to make sure I get out of the way and that God just does His book justice. But not only that, with what we've covered even just so far, with peace and hope, the fact that you are at peace with God and the fact that He has given you Himself as the living embodiment of hope, let's go before Him right now and let's thank Him for that. And let's pray for the rest of tonight's message. Father, I do want to thank You very much for the peace that passeth understanding in those dark and stormy days. And maybe even there's some people in here right now that are going through that. I thank you for the peace that passes understanding that it's not happiness, because happiness is fleeting. That in the midst of our trials, that we can have an anchor for the hope of our soul. And that hope and that peace is Christ. We thank you for him. We thank you, Father, for sending him to die on the cross. And I pray that if there's anyone in here tonight that hasn't really crossed over, maybe they believed in vain like we talked about at the end of last week, where they haven't put their complete dependence on Christ, I pray tonight would be all changed as we get another glimpse as to what actually happened when you came down to the cross and died. Help me. Actually, kill me, slay me, mortify me tonight, and may you speak through me. Because I don't want it to be my words, I don't want it to be in my power. I want you to have the preeminence in Jesus' name. Amen. So when it comes to this whole idea of Romans chapter 5, verse 2, when he says that we have access by faith, do you realize how unique that is? You realize how unique it is that you and I, who have crossed over by faith and have been justified by His blood and have trusted Him as Savior, the reality of what this access means, that kind of like how we've been talking on Sunday mornings, that in this 2,000-year parenthesis of human history, that this is a very unique time unlike any other. I want to spend some time talking about that, and I can't do that without talking about the tabernacle. Now, that might be a little bit hard for you guys to see, but I couldn't stretch it out any further. But this visual here is a, is a bird's eye view of the tabernacle because we have to look at the Old Testament and how God justified people back then. So with the tabernacle, again, it was this very temporary uh, uh, mobile unit that was used for the nation of Israel when they were wandering throughout the wilderness. It was where they met with God, where they worshipped God, and where sin was dealt with. And this is a very crude drawing of a bird's eye view of how it was. So first off, you have this outer court here which again was kind of like this little uh, veiled fence. And then you had this court where the altar would take place. And the animal sacrifice that was needed would take place here in this, altar, this outer court. And a priest, several priests actually, would take that blood. I need to move this. They would take that blood and they would bring it in for all of these instruments here that are into the holy place. Now this part here. This is a, the actual tent part of the tabernacle. And the tent part was divided up into two spots. You have the holy place, and inside the holy place you have the showbread, a picture of Jesus Christ who is our bread of life. You have the golden candlestick, which is a picture of Jesus Christ, the light of the world. And you have the golden altar of incense. And the incense represents the prayers according to Revelation 4 and Revelation 5 that we offer up to Christ. And then you have this other veil right here that, dived, that divvied up or divided up the two rooms. 
with a holy place. And over here you have what's known as the most holy place or the holiest place in other places it's called. And through here you would have what's called the mercy seat. You know what was, what was beneath the mercy seat? What was it? The ark. The ark. And inside the ark, there were three things that were contained in it. Anybody know what those are? Ten commandments. Aaron's rod that budded. And manna. That's right. Once again, all pictures of Jesus Christ. The Ten Commandments, which is the Word. The beginning was the Word. The Word was, was with God. The Word was God. The rod, thy rod and thy staff comfort me. And manna, again, that bread of life. Now again, in the Old Testament, whenever there were sins that needed to be atoned, priests would go into this holy place, and they would take the blood, and then they would sprinkle it upon these instruments that are used in the holy place, and they would sprinkle it upon the brazen altar, which is where the animal would ultimately be burnt and would be consumed entirely, whether it be a bullock, a goat, a lamb, you name it. However, this was something they had to do continually whenever they continued to sin. And as a nation was concerned, once every single year, the great high priest, so not just the priests of not just the Levitical priests, but the high priest, the one, the head honcho, in other words, he would go in through the holy place and he would actually pass through the veil, but not without blood. He would take that blood and he would sprinkle it on the ark and on the mercy seat. And something I forgot to mention about the mercy seat. That mercy seat sat on top of the ark and it was these two cherubims. And the cherubims are these angelic, well, beings. And in between the two cherubims, it was where the Shekinah glory of God himself was supposed to reign. It was where he reigned. It was where he stayed. It was where his presence was. This shining, radiating light. Remember when Moses came down off the mountain with the Ten Commandments and they had to look away because his face was so bright and so shining? He was just radiating the glory and the light of God himself. This, in the most holy place, is where God himself dwelt. It was his presence. Here, on earth, in the Old Testament times. And this one time a year, the great high priest would take the blood of that animal and he would go into the holiest place and sprinkle the blood on the ark seven times to cleanse all of the nation of Israel from their sin. For him and his family and for the entire nation. And for the other sacrifices, the other sins that needed to be atoned, the priest would come back out from the holy place and he, they would have a little goat here, normally known as a scapegoat. And the priest would come and he'd lay his hands upon that scapegoat. And it was to signify this transference of the sins of whoever brought the sacrificial animal, or in this case, for the sins of the entire nation. And the priest would transfer that, those sins to this scapegoat. And the scapegoat would go free. He would go off into the wilderness. And Israel would be cleansed. You imagine if you had to do that to atone for your sin? Again, very unique time you live in, unlike any other time. But when it comes to this idea of the holy place, and even the holiest of places, turn over to Hebrews chapter 9, because I want you guys to see this. You have to get a visual for what this was like and for what, it, what occurred every single time a sin offering was brought. And again, that once a year when the great high priest would go into the holiest place and he would offer the blood as payment for the sins of all of Israel. You know what's very, very unique about the priestly garments? You know what the priests and the great high priest had to have as a part of their garments? A very unique piece of jewelry. A bell. Anybody want to take a guess as to why a priest had to have bells wrapped around him? 
Caleb? Just in case they went and died in the holy place or the most holy place. Why would they die? Because God would strike them down if they didn't do the sequence of events right or, you know. Or if they didn't have any, or if they didn't, if they had any unconfessed sin. Can you imagine being a Levitical priest? Can you imagine going in? I mean, think about the thoughts that flood your mind that are not right on a minute-by-minute or hourly basis. Can you imagine getting in there and then getting right out? Man, be crazy. Crazy times back then. Hebrews chapter 9. We're going to go through a lot of this chapter, but again, I want you guys to see this. Because Hebrews is a deep book, but it's going to help us understand verse 2 of Romans chapter 5, this access that we have, and hopefully it'll cause a much deeper appreciation to you guys. Look with me in verse 1. Then verily, the first covenant had also ordinances of divine service and a worldly sanctuary, for there was a tabernacle made. See up here on the screen, this is what he's talking about. The first, talking about the holy place right here, this first tabernacle, the first place you enter in, the first wherein was the candlestick, the table, the showbread, which is called the sanctuary, and after the second veil, the tabernacle, which is called the what? Holiest of all which had the golden censer and the Ark of the Covenant overlaid round about gold, wherein the golden pot, manna, Aaron's rod, butter, the tables of covenant, etc., and so forth, and over the cherubims of glory, verse 5, shadowing the mercy seat of which we cannot now speak particularly. Now, he goes through all that. It's basically just what I summarized. Look at verse 6. Now, when these things were thus ordained, the priests went always into the first tabernacle, accomplishing the service of God. But into the second went the high priest alone every year. Look at that next phrase. Not without blood. You better go in. You better have a blood offering if you're going to come face to face with the glory of God. When you stand at the mercy seat, when you stand, you better have blood. You better not enter into his presence without blood. Which he offered for himself and for the heirs of the people. Verse 8. The Holy Ghost, this signifying that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest. While as the first tabernacle was yet standing. He's talking about this whole thing. Not everybody had direct access to the most holy place. It was only the great high priest. Only one person had direct access to the presence of God Himself. It was just this first tabernacle. The, the fullness of it wasn't quite come to fruition yet. Look what He says in verse 9. This tabernacle, He's saying, which was a figure, or it's a picture, for the time then present in which were offered both gifts and sacrifices, note, that could not make Him that did the service Perfect. Day in and day out, they would do this and perform all of these tasks, and it would never purify them. It would never make them justified. It would never make them right, holy, and clean before a holy and righteous God. It could not, as pertaining to the conscience, which stood only in meats and drinks and diverse washings and cardinal ordinances imposed on them until the time of Reformation. He's talking about the law, in other words. Oh, and here's where things change. Verse 11. But Christ, being come in high priest of good things to come by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building. Do you see what he just did there? The writer of Hebrews He's saying that not only is this the tabernacle, but this tabernacle, this picture here, it's a representation of the human body. That's what we just read. Jesus Christ is talking about His tabernacle. Gee, how is this like a human body? Well, how many parts of a, of a man is there? How many parts of a, of a human being is there? Eight. Three. Actually, you're on to something, but we don't have time to cover that. Okay. Maybe when we get to members, yes. 
There's three parts to a human being. There's a body. There's a what? Soul. And a? Spirit. Well, you have the outer court, which is encased here, and it's a shell. But then you have an entrance into the holy place. And then deeper into the holy place, you have the holiest place. And the only way the body can have access to the spirit is through the holy place. Just like the only way the outer court has direct access to the holiest place is through the holy place. So you see this tabernacle, it's a picture of the human body. Or of a human, rather. The body, the outer court, the soul, the holy place, and the spirit, the most holy place. Now again, you and I being born in Adam's image, what is dead when we are born into this life? The spirit. And when... We are moved by the Spirit of God because He's seeking us first and we hear the gospel of Christ and we come to respond. The Bible uses a word called regenerate, to be regenerated by faith. What happens then? We become born again. And Christ takes up residence. He revives our dead spirit. That's why the holy place is just like the spirit and the soul, the holy place, the outer court, the body. And he's saying that that's what Christ was. He Not only is that a picture of our body, but Christ himself became that high priest, the one who went into the holy place once a year to deal with sin for all of Israel. But look at verse 12. Neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood he entered in how many times once into the holy place having obtained eternal redemption for us for if the blood of bulls and of goats and of the ashes of an heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctify it to the purifying the flesh how much more much more much more, a phrase you will see again tonight in Romans 5, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. What it's saying is just like that great high priest who once a year would take the blood and go through the holy place and then into the holiest place and sprinkle the blood in the presence of God, the Father himself, that's what Jesus Christ did for you. He became the great high priest. He went in with his own blood as a sacrifice, and he sprinkled it on the ark, so to speak. He was the only one who could have done it. And you know what happened when he did that? When he was suspended in air between heaven and between the earth, rejected by God the Father because He became sin. He took upon us, upon Himself our sins. Do you know what happened when the work was finished? What happened when Christ died? What was that? This veil that separated the holy place from the most holy place the holiest place, the veil that only made one man, one person, only once a year, have direct access to the presence of God Himself, that veil was torn in two, signifying that access is now open for all. Not just one man anymore. Not just once a year. But everyone who is justified by faith and has peace with God, they too have access to the presence of God Himself. If you're in here and you have been justified by faith, that's you. 
you have something, you have a unique ability every single day to enter into that holiest of places, to be in the presence of God Himself every single day, that millions of Israelites throughout the entire Old Testament never had the ability or the gift to do. Not David, not Moses, not millions from the 12 tribes. Christ himself entered in there so that you, any time that you want, can go directly to the Father. You have access by faith to be in his presence. Now you think about that the next time you consider skipping Bible reading. You think about that the next time you consider dealing with life's problems and life's issues on your own. Because you are squandering a gift that has been given to you in this very unique time. I don't even have time to go into how not only is this tabernacle a picture of the human himself, three parts, but this is also representative of heaven itself. You realize that there's something called the heavenly tabernacle? You can read it in, in Hebrews chapter 9, verses 24 to 26 later, where it talks about that this tabernacle, it's a picture of heaven because you have the sea of glass as the outer court. You have the four and twenty elders. You can read all this in Revelation chapter 4 also. The four and twenty elders who are worshiping God constantly in the holy place. And then in the holiest of places, you have Jesus Christ himself sitting down on the right hand of God, the Father himself. That's what this is a picture of. And one day, you and I are going to be there worshiping Him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, unobstructed by our sin, by our thoughts, by this world, by our friends, by our family members who get us down. It'll be just as it should have always been in the Garden of Eden. But, 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 you have direct access now in this unique time that is unlike any other point in human history where you can go straight to the Father. You can have boldness to help in time of trouble. Look at chapter 6, talking about hope and how Christ is not only our peace, but He is our hope. Which hope, verse 19, which hope we have because of what He did, as an anchor of the soul. Do you feel like your life is just drifting along in the storms of life and the stormy waters and waves? Christ can be your anchor to, to keep you steadfast and sure. And which entereth into that within the veil? Jesus Christ, your hope, He gives you direct access to the holiest of places where God's presence is. You get to spend time in God's presence every single time you open up this book. Every single time you go and you pray to Him. You see, this is why like, my prayer life has been changed. Not to say I'm super spiritual because I still have a long way to go with prayer. But my prayer life has changed whereas so often in my life it's always been about bringing my supplications and my requests of how He could make my life better. If we have time tonight, we're going to go over to Revelation chapter 5 and we're going to see that day and night there are angels who are doing nothing but saying, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain! Glory! 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 Praise to the King! Praise to the Lamb! When was the last time you just did nothing but praise God in your prayer? It's been a long time for me, and that's what God's been kicking my teeth around recently. So often our prayer is but giving God advice on how to make our lives better by how He can do this request for us, how He can fulfill this desire, how He can make this friendship happen, how He can make this relationship happen. 
fill in the blank. And yet we can come to Him at any time and just tell Him how good He is. And we can come before His presence and just be with Him. Do you see the difference between that and doing Bible reading? Doing devotions? It's different. You guys are unique. All of Israel for 4,000 years did not have the privilege you have. Whatever you want. You don't even need to tie bells around your waist. You can do it now. Now turn over to Romans chapter 5. Verse 1, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Praise His name. By whom also we have access, this kind of access, by faith into this grace wherein we stand and rejoice in hope and glory of God. You know one of the other reasons why we're going through how to study the Bible on Sunday mornings? Look at all that we just did, all that we just saw, and we're only two verses into Romans 5. Do you see how much fun you can have when you just go slow? You guys don't have to do a chapter a day. You can just camp out on one verse if you want. Camp out on two verses. And see where God will take you. Be with Him. Don't make Bible reading a religious act. Just be with Him. Because you realize that what He had to go through, you think that He wants to be with you? He wants to spend time with you. He can't wait for you to get up tomorrow morning and open up His book. He is just chomping at the bit, ready to give you what He wants to give you next in His Word. Come and be in His presence. He'll take care of the rest. Because you see, when we get through this, when we have peace with God because we've been justified, when we have access to the most holy place, point number three on your outline, it's only then can we grow in our walk with God. We're not going to spend long on this because these verses should be familiar to you. Verse 3, And not only so, but we glory in tribulations also, knowing that tribulation worketh patience, patience experience, experience hope, and hope maketh not ashamed. You shouldn't be ashamed of this peace and this hope you have. You shouldn't be ashamed to carry your Bible around because you have a changed life. You have access to the Father. The love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost which is given unto us. Question, is the love of God shed abroad in your heart? Do you have a love for the Word of God and for the people and the souls of men who need to be justified? If not, spend some time in the presence of God. This is where your growth in your walk with Christ takes place. Hopefully this is familiar to you. Because God gave us all things. He gave us everything we need according to the knowledge of Him that hath called us. This book has given us everything for life and godliness. Look at verse 5 of 2 Peter 1. And beside this, giving all diligence, do what? It's the very last part, sorry. Add to your faith. There's some podcast episodes you can go back a couple months and listen to if you need help on how to do that. This is where your walk takes place. You see, in letter A, we just saw we were criminals who are now standing in hope and peace. But in letter B, it's only because hope and peace became a criminal. Look at verse 6. For when we were yet without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. It does not say good, does it? This is something, man, take this verse tomorrow, show it to somebody. Show it to somebody who is convinced that their good works will get them to heaven. This will just blast it right out of the water. Christ did not come to die for good people, point one. Even when we were enemies, His love for us drove Him to the cross. Christ died for the ungodly. That means all are ungodly. Verse 7, for scarcely, I love this, for scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Hey, is it, 
you guys are pretty righteous people. I don't mean that in like the hippie way of saying it, righteous. You guys are pretty righteous. I look around, I know most of your testimonies. How many of you would be willing to die for the person sitting next to you right now at this very moment in time? Scarcely would it happen. Sometimes, yes. Scarcely will it happen. Andy, would you die for me? Absolutely. Right, right now. Right now. Done. Okay. Wow. He knew it. Scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure for a good man someone even dare to die. Case in point, you don't see this happening that often. I really would. Even more so, verse 8. God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners. Translation, enemies. Ungodly, unholy, not clean, sinners. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Man, check out Isaiah 53. You want to write down Isaiah 53 on, in somewhere in your Bible. Highlight it, circle it. This is one of the greatest prophecies concerning Christ in the entire Bible. It is so impossible to misconstrue. It is so impossible to misconstrue, thank you, Andy, that this is about Christ. Verse 3, He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he hath borne or carried our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet, even in spite of him doing that, we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted by the way we've lived our life prior to salvation. Even still... Verse 5, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes, we are healed. Yes, he did that while you were his enemy. You go to school. Some of you work. You might have family members. You have neighbors. You have people you're involved with in your extracurricular activities who are currently enemies. And by the way, God is angry with the wicked every day. They need to know that he did that for them. Will you tell him? Will you tell her? Will you enter into the holiness and have direct access to God the Father and be in his presence to get the boldness and strength you require? Number two, we see that his work on the cross has saved us much more than our work ever could. Look at verse 9. Told you guys, check out for that phrase. Much more than. <laughs> what, how could you possibly top dying for your enemies? How could you possibly top that? And yet he follows that up with the verse, much more. Much more than. Being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. Man, you know what you've been saved much more from? First bullet point, you've been saved from wrath to come. Ezekiel 22.31 says, man, again, this was you before salvation. And this is all of your lost family members and friends who are not currently saved. God speaking, therefore have I poured out mine indignation upon them. I have consumed them with the fire of my wrath. Their own way. Their own way have I recompensed upon their heads. It doesn't matter Oh, well, man, Adam committed this sin. That's not fair that I get punished. No, you chose to go your own way with your own sins. Your own way will he recompense upon their heads, saith the Lord God. Revelation 19.11, when God comes back, when Christ comes back. And I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. And he that sat upon him was called faithful and true, and in righteousness he doth judge and make war. That's from no. He did quote that. No, he quoted Revelation chapter. He quoted the four horsemen. Oh. <laughs> Verse 10. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, check it out, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Second bullet point on your outline. Not only were we saved from wrath to come, but we were brought back or reconciled to the Father by the resurrected life of the Son. 
brought back to the Father, we were given access to the Father because the veil was torn because Christ, like a bull, literally charged through that veil and destroyed it and tore it all up. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17. Wherefore, in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren. Jesus Christ, God, became a man, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God. Listen, I may not get everything you guys are going through. I've said it again. I've said it a thousand times. I'll say it again. I feel like I was just in high school yesterday. Time flies after you graduate. It's been a while since I've said it. I still feel like I am a late teen, early 20-something-year-old. I'm telling you guys, I may not understand everything you go through, but you have a high priest who was made like unto his brethren that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God. I may not get it. He gets it. You have direct access to him anytime you want. It's a unique gift that's only available to you and not really to anybody else in all of human history before these 2,000 years. To make reconciliation brought back together for the sins of the people. And Hebrews 7.25, yeah, he is just waiting. He's waiting around to hear, to hear from you because 7.25 says it. Wherefore, he is able also to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. Do you understand that Jesus Christ's role sitting on the hand of the Father right now, His job, His role, his pre- is a, that of a priest to make intercession for you, to intercede on your behalf in order to be a go-between between the Father and you. Not only that, He ever liveth to do that for you. He looks forward to it. And yet we're reminded in the book of James that maybe we have not because we ask not. You have an unanswered prayer in your life? Maybe you have not because you've not gone to Him to intercede on your behalf. You have access. It's one of the gifts you have being saved in the New Testament. And not only that, look at verse 11. And not only so, but we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have now received the atonement. That word atonement, third bullet point on your outline, it literally means restored to the image of God. Remember that three-part being that you were always made to be, but you were born into this world and Adam's image, so now you're a two-part being? Well, now you are restored. And now that you are restored... You have direct access to the Father just as Adam and Eve did. And if just kind of like we have this little play on words with the word justified, the word justified, an easy way to remember what that means is just if I'd never sinned. Atonement. All of this, you're restored to God and it happened at one moment. At one moment. That's atonement. It happened immediately. It happened the moment you, by faith, obeyed the gospel, called upon Him to save you. That's one of the benefits you have of being justified. Point one, you're saved by His life. And now we're going to enter into point two, and this will go fast. We are saved from the penalty of death. We're going to see in letter A here, this free gift that He gave us, it is incomparable. It cannot be compared to anything else. Look at verse 12. Wherefore, as by one man, who's that one man? Well, let me keep reading. As by one man sin entered into the world. Who is it? Adam. And death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed where there is no law. More on that, I think next, no. Two weeks from now. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over them that had not sinned after the similitude of Adam's transgression. See? For your friend at school who says, it's not fair that I'm a sinner separated from God and that I'm going to go to hell if I don't receive Christ because I didn't sin like Adam did. Well, according to this verse, it doesn't matter because everybody after Adam didn't sin like Adam did, and yet they still died. Happens. 
They've all gone their own way, as we saw in Ezekiel. Who is the figure of him that was to come. But, not as the offense, offense. Not as the offense, so also is the free gift. Now, that's kind of confusing here, and I'll make light of it here in a second when we go through and define it. But he's basically saying, hey, what Adam did, it's not the same with what Christ did. The two are incompatible, or they're, they're incomparable. You can't compare the two. Not as the offense, so also is the free gift. And here's what he says. For if through the offense of one many be dead, much more the grace of God and the gift by grace, which is by one man, Jesus Christ, hath abounded unto many. So look on your outline here. The condition of the gift is in stark contrast to the condition of men dying. And here's the summation of that verse that I just read. The bullet point there. You see, every man has no choice on the matter of death. Everybody will die. You one day will die, unless you're raptured out of here. You don't have a choice in the matter. Not as the offense, so also is the free gift. For if through the offense of one, many be dead, all are going to die. You have no choice on that. And here's why you can't compare it to what he says next. Keep reading on your outline. But... Every man has no choice on the matter of death, but every man does have a choice to receive the grace of eternal life because it's free. It's not just a gift. It's a free gift. A free gift. That's different. It's, it, it, it's not, you can't compare the two. And not only that, well, a couple verses here. Choice is yours. Gospel of John, as many as received him, that's a choice, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name by faith. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth, whosoever believeth. Yeah, even the one who you think is never going to get saved. Yeah, whosoever, whosoever believeth should not perish, but have everlasting life. John eleven twenty six and whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. Man, what a great question. Believest thou this? You should ask that tomorrow to one person. Maybe leave off the EST. They might look at you weird and might not give you an answer. So the condition of the gift is in stark contrast to the condition of men dying. And number two on your outline not only that, but how the gift is given is different from how judgment was passed down. What do I mean by that? Well, let's read in verse 16. And not as it was by one that sinned, so is the gift. For the judgment was by one to condemnation, but the free gift is of many offenses unto justification. Again, the comparison is not equal. Look at your outline. While one sin condemned all... God gave the free gift to people who have committed and continue to commit innumerable amounts of sins. Did you catch that? Look at the end of verse 16 again where he says, But the free gift is of many offenses unto justification. So you see, this is why you can't compare the two. If it was a similitude, if they were compared, if they were equal, it would say this. One man's sin causes condemnation, then the sins of millions should cause millions of condemnations. But what the verse just said there is, yeah, one man's sin caused condemnation to all, but by many sins being committed by those people, they're justified. It's what we just looked at earlier to sum it up. Even though people were committing horrendous atrocities, committing atrocious sins, God still died for them. God still pardoned them. God legally declared them as not guilty and made them completely clean and holy. God did that for you in the midst of your many offenses when you came to receive Him as Savior. That doesn't make sense. If by one man sinned, judgment came to condemnation, I've sinned so that I should be condemned. But in the midst of my many offenses, he justified me. Wow, how incomparable the two are because of how great his gift has been for you or, or is for you. 
much more of the grace given for many sins. Luke 7.47 says, Wherefore I say unto thee, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. This is when Mary broke the alabaster box and started wiping Christ's feet. He's defending her. He's coming to her defense. For she loved much, but to whom little is forgiven, the same loveth little. 1 Timothy 1.15, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. Uh, that's the greatest Christian who have ever lived, by the way, who said that. He called himself the chief of sinners, the many offenses that he's committed. And yet, in spite of that, Christ saved him. Christ came into the world to save him. Christ came into the world to save you. Set somebody into your life, whether it be a parent, a friend, or whomever, to tell you the truth of the gospel, that you might be saved. Man. So now we come to letter B. The first Adam versus the last Adam. Point one. Christ's death on the cross is more than just your way to heaven. I hope, I hope, I hope that point was made abundantly clear tonight. If it wasn't, one of two things. I didn't do my job properly, and I got in the way of God trying to do that. Or two, maybe you weren't listening. Christ's death on the cross is more than just your way to heaven. And yet so many of us, when we came to Christ and got saved, that was all we cared about. And some of you, maybe, even after you came to Christ, that's all you still care about. And there's so much more you're missing out on. You see, he died to pay the penalty of Adam's disobedience. That makes what he did cosmically, I don't even know if that's a word or not, but enormously more vast and huge than our comprehension. Again, we get it in our mind that it... And again, we need to, for the gospel's sake, we need to appropriate it to ourselves. We get so narrow-minded into thinking that, oh, he did it just for me. Yes, but it's more than that. He did it to pay the penalty of Adam's disobedience for all of mankind throughout all of history. How often is a baby being born in this world? It's like once a second, twice a second. Anybody know that statistic? I know it's got to hurry up for me. Huh? Oh, yeah. As soon as babies are born in this world, Christ died for them. To pay the penalty of Adam's disobedience that is now inherited through them. Look at verse 18. Therefore, as by the offense of one, judgment came upon all men to condemnation. Even so, by the righteousness of one, the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. What I mean by he paid the price of Adam's sin and just the, the, how cosmically huge that is. Colossians 1.20, and having made peace through the blood of his cross, by him to reconcile all things unto himself. By him I say whether they be things in earth or things in heaven. Do you realize how sin messed up everything? Not just human sin? You realize that animals started killing each other afterwards too? You realize that viruses and bacteria started sometimes working against us and trying to kill us too? That says he came to die to reconcile all things because the sin of one man did that to everything on this planet humans animals everything that is all jacked up I'm not saying Christ died for your puppy your dashend is that what it was dash hound whatever it's called whatever you lied anyway so it doesn't matter I'm not saying Christ came to die for the beagle what I'm saying is he came to pay the penalty of Adam's disobedience and it was to rectify everything that went wrong with the sin that now brought into this world and just cosmically destroyed everything. Someone better look up if cosmically is a word because I keep saying it, but I want you guys to get the scope of that. This is so huge. It's so vast. And that very same powerful God, guess what? You have access to at any moment you want to be in his presence and to talk with him and to hear from him and have your lives completely changed. He did that, whether they be things in earth or things in heaven. That is huge. 
For as by one man's disobedience, verse 19, many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. It's not fair, but he's God, and he can do whatever he wants, and he chose it to be that way. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. That as sin hath reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. You see, point number two, grace abounds much more thanks to the Lamb that was slain. Do yourselves a favor and read Revelation 4 and Revelation 5 tonight before you go to bed. To get a glimpse of what heaven's going to be like one day. To get a glimpse of what it's going to be like when we were actually worshiping God with a perfect glorified body that will not sin against Him. And understand and know that that kind of worship, that kind of adoration, that kind of love that the 4 and 20 elders have for Him on that day, you can have right now. Let it be a gut check for you as to what your level of worship, or as it's been said, the word worship means worth-ship. How much is Christ worth to you? Check those out. Check out the passages later if you want in 1 Corinthians. It just talks about Adam versus the last Adam, Christ, and what he did to make a way for us. But I'm telling you guys, if you're not sure if you're going to be there on that day in Revelation 4 and 5, singing praises, saying, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain. Worthy, worthy, glory. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. If you're not sure of that, you have a chance to get made right right now. Let's bow our heads. Again, it's by faith. Maybe you've been trusting in your works this whole time. Maybe you believed in vain. It was just intellectual assent. It was just head knowledge. It's not enough. You will perish on that day. If so, look into the Lamb of God. Look into His wonderful face. Consider what it was that He did for you and call out to Him by faith to save you now. Lord, we thank You very much for tonight. I thank You for what a beautiful picture in the Old Testament that is revealed to us in the New Testament through the tabernacle and just what you did at the moment of salvation. Everyone who chose to trust in you by faith not only had their sins declared not guilty and washed away forever, but they were given access to you, a very present help in time of trouble for you to be our defense for us. So God, continue to fight for us, continue to be on our side that we may win the battles that we face every single day. We love you and pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.